0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Here's How podcast, which is a little more delayed than I thought it would be, and here's why. When I sat down to edit these interviews, conversations that I felt like were a masterclass in excellence, doubts crept in. These people and their stories were so amazing, who was I to think I could adequately encapsulate their triumphs? Pair that with feedback from friends who thought Season 1 of the podcast was heavy. What's a girl who's 70% self-doubt supposed to do? Take a deep breath. And at the suggestion of her therapist, put a little more me in it. So here we go. Season two starts with Jean Munchrath, one of those women you meet who you just hope time turns you into. In 1982, Jean was just shy of 23. She had a passion for the outdoors.
1: Mountains have always been the joy of my life and I love to explore.
0: Jean and her boyfriend Ken set out for the John Muir Trail, a trek a little under 215 miles that passes through Yosemite and the Sequoia National Parks. Ken would propose on their journey, but unfortunately, that wasn't the most eventful part of their expedition. On what the couple thought would be the last day of their trip, the weather changed abruptly while they were on Mount Whitney. At 14,500 feet, it's the highest point in the continental U.S.
1: It started to snow, and it was lightning and thundering. And then the weather would get good for a while, and then it got worse. And we couldn't go the way we had hoped to because the rocks were glazing up. And I decided I was going to down climb that 20 feet. I get to a point where I can't move up. I can't move down. This voice bubbled up, and it said, God, don't let me fall. And then my world went dark, and I'm tumbling down.
0: Jean fell 150 feet down a mountain. Her resulting injuries were extensive. She fractured her hip and spine in three places. She had an open wound on her scalp, a mild concussion, and nerve damage to her bladder. She was also bleeding profusely from a wound on her left butt cheek. Being that it was 1982, she couldn't just dial 911 for help. She and Ken decided they would trek out together.
1: We sank up to my thighs in snow with 35 pounds on my broken back and pelvis. And I remember being fearful that my bones would shift and I'd be paralyzed. And I remember feeling like, I can't do this. This is painful. This is so far to go. But then I would think of my dream to see the Himalayas. That's right. Jean was injured on a mountain, and what kept her
0: going is the thought of seeing more mountains. She's incredible. And I'm so excited to share her story with you. My name is Erin Jensen, and this podcast has been a dream in my heart for a very long time. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. As an entertainment writer, I've talked to a number of celebrities. Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, some who weren't married to each other, The Rock, The Lena Gomez. My favorite interviews are the ones that go beyond whatever project the star is looking to promote. Conversations that get into topics that we can all relate to. Things like failures, disappointments, grief. My therapist would tell you, if he wasn't bound by HIPAA laws, that I could benefit from increasing my resiliency. I've never cried over spilled milk, but I have cried over spilled orange juice, which is why I'm in awe of people who are able to overcome what my mind views as unimaginable loss inconceivable heartbreak, or an insurmountable challenge. If you've ever come across a remarkable story of triumph and thought to yourself, how on earth did they do that? Here's how. And you have such a smile on your face. What did being in the mountains
1: do for you? It's the beauty, the fact that you've got that rugged uplift. The more rugged a mountain range is and the more glaciers it has on it, the more it draws me. And that's because I sort of almost see it like a connecting point between heaven and earth. It's like it raises my inner spirit as that geographic landscape moves upwards. It just makes me feel big and strong. And yet at the same time, it humbles me. And I think the thing about being in the mountains is there's always challenges that arise. And those circumstances often call on us to rise to some occasion, to find a solution, to get out of it, to manage it. And that in itself helps reveal both our strengths and our weaknesses. And I do think that can help us on the journey of life. Jean says it took
0: several years to plan and train for her excursion on the John Muir Trail.
1: This is very, very rugged terrain. And we had to plan the gear we would take so that we'd have everything we needed to survive, but it would still be lightweight. And one of the trickiest Parts of planning was the food, because you can't carry a month's worth of food on your back at once.
0: They filled five-gallon drums with a week's worth of food, which was mostly dehydrated. They'd placed the containers in a tree with a note that said the food was needed for their survival.
1: There's no GPS units because this is 1982. We had to make sure we'd be able to find a given tree at a given spot at a given moment because our life really depended on this food. So that planning was very crucial and we thought the whole trip would take us about a month. We didn't have access to weather forecasts. We didn't have the latest, greatest high-tech clothing or skiing. My boots were more like bowling shoes. (laughs) We had challenges along the whole trip with avalanches and avalanche debris and different types of snow about a third of the way into skiing the trail. His voice rose up and it did say something terrible is going to happen. And then I reflected on who I was with. And Ken was a mathematician. He was very logic oriented and I'm more intuitive feel oriented. And, and I thought, uh, how is this going to come off if I say, hey, um, let's just turn around and give this up and go out the earliest place we can exit the mountains? Because I have this feeling we've spent all this money, we've quit our jobs, we've trained for years, and I knew that wouldn't go over. And so I, I kind of just squashed it. And I can say there's one of many lessons learned on this is listen to your gut feeling.
0: On what Jean and Ken expected to be the last day of their trip, they'd made it to Mount Whitney
1: we started glissading, literally hanging on our ice axes. So I had all of my body weight, my 35 pounds of backpack and my skis all hanging on a half an inch metal pick into the mountain and slowly descending in that way. Ken fell because he switched positions and then he hit a patch of ice. And so he went flying this 800 feet down the mountain, which he really shouldn't have survived, but he did. And then I continued down very slowly. And for me, that time period was filled with enormous fear because I couldn't see Ken. I would yell into the void. I would never hear him. The wind is howling. The storm is still going on. And I knew that if I messed up, I would fall. And then I couldn't help him. I didn't even know if he was alive. And so that couple of hours was really terrifying. And I had to really concentrate to keep my ice axe into the mountain. And I didn't look around because. I, can, I just couldn't lose concentration. It was that threatening. So eventually the terrain kind of eased up, and that's when I was able to stand up, and I got a better view down the mountain, and I could see Ken, and he was coming up to help me. And then the weather would get good for a while, and then it got worse, and we couldn't go the way we had hoped to because the rocks were glazing up. And then at one point, all we needed was to get down maybe 20 feet um, down this rocky band, and then it would access this ramp of rock that would lead us away from these cliffs below us.
0: Ken told Jean to wait while he retrieved a climbing rope from his backpack, which he'd left at the base of the cliff.
1: And I remember waiting and waiting. And then I thought, you know, I'm 22. I'm strong. I have never been so strong. It's like, I can do this, but I didn't calculate those critical things. Ken didn't have a backpack on. I had 35 pounds on my back. I had my skis. I'm much, much shorter, which means I can't reach the same footholds and handholds. So I took my skis off my backpack because I knew they would catch on the rocks. And I threw them down the mountain because I knew they were a hazard to me. And I decided I was going to down climb that 20 feet. Well, it didn't go so well. I went down and I'm wearing ski boots, not rock climbing shoes. And they have little half inch protrusions off the front of the sole that goes into the bindings. And so you you can't grasp onto the rock quite the same. My hands are cold. It's been a long, exhausting, emotionally draining day with the storm. And I get to a point where I can't move up. I can't move down. I'm literally spread eagle on this mountain and I'm exhausted and twilight is approaching now. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I just remember this voice bubbled up and it said, God, don't let me fall. And then my world went dark and I'm tumbling down and I could hear things so I was conscious for just a split second and then I was unconscious but I could hear the bam 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 my backpack you know and my body hitting the rocks after about 150-ish feet I landed in the snow. Jean became conscious
0: as Ken was dragging her across the snow. When he tried to help her stand she collapsed. About a quarter of a mile from the incident they set up a tent as it started to get dark. Numerous injuries resulted from Jean's fall.
1: My scalp had opened a concussion that was fairly mild. The spine was fractured in three places and my sacriolic joints were rotated and displaced. (laughs) The x-ray said a possible fracture of my pubic bone and my right hip. Well, I had to get an MRI last year and my chiropractor looked at that and he said, yeah, you had a fracture on your right hip. And then I had a lot of nerve damage to my legs, to my bladder. I literally couldn't pee for five days after the accident, which was excruciating. (laughs) And then, And one of the worst things that happened is I got an open wound in my left buttock and it bled profusely um, externally and internally. I needed five pints of blood products when I got to the hospital. And before I got to the hospital, because it took us five days, I basically developed gangrene. So I lost a significant part of my lower buttock.
0: (laughs) She asked Ken to stay up for the night as her breathing was very shallow.
1: I was bleeding all over the tent and I didn't think I would make it. And then right before I went to sleep, it was the strangest thing. I'm very lucid, but I'm laying in the darkness in this tiny tent. It's storming outside. And I sense something almost like another body floating over my body. Like it was this close to my face, like it wanted to kiss me. And I felt that that was death. As I fast forward, I now see that That was my life force leaving my body. And that's how I perceive it today. I was like, I might die here, but I didn't have any control over it. So it was peaceful, but I made this vow. And that was, if I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. I just wanted to set eyes on the Himalayas and just see them, worship them, and be in total awe of this amazing mountain range. One of the things that kept me going is this... Mantra just came up from my gut, and that mantra was, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I'm going to live. And I said that in my head for days. I think repeating that mantra gave me hope and it helped me to believe that this might be possible because I had every reason not to live. I mean, every doctor I've seen has said, Why are you alive and why are you not paralyzed?
0: Jean awoke in the morning after her accident. Much to her surprise, she and Ken stayed in the tent for two days until the storm cleared.
1: We woke up to a beautiful morning. I was like, okay, we have to get out alive. It took them two hours to pack,
0: not because of what they'd taken with them, but because of how slowly Jean was able to move. The loss of so much blood and a lack of nutrients made Jean dizzy.
1: I just would focus on one step at a time, which I think is a real metaphor for life. It's just one step. You accomplish that, you get to the next step. And when you add up all those steps, you wind up getting somewhere. And for me, the hardest part was some of the terrain we had to cross. There's no trail, there's snow, there's rock. There was one place we sank up to my thighs in snow with 35 pounds on my broken back and pelvis. And I remember being fearful that my bones would shift and I'd be paralyzed. And I remember feeling like, I can't do this. This is painful. This is so far to go. But then again, I would think of that vow and I would think of my dream to see the Himalayas. I was sinking and struggling and I didn't think I could continue. Then I would remind myself of my dream and then I would pull the next leg out of that snow. Sometimes I would collapse onto the dirt lower down, my face planted in the dirt. And I remember that dream and I'd push myself up. So I I really, really believe in the power of the mind and the importance of having purpose and dreams in our life to keep us going through hardships.
0: I just have such chills. And then you finally make it. To a parking lot with people who can take you to a hospital, it's not necessarily the finish line, but I mean, my God, what a mile marker, the potential of getting this medical attention you so desperately need.
1: When I first saw that black asphalt, I cannot tell you how happy I was. I was beyond joyful. I'm a person who loves wilderness, but the parking lot meant everything to me because it meant I was going to survive. The odds were very high in my favor, although I was very near death at that moment.
0: The first car Ken flagged down refused to take Jean to the hospital.
1: We looked like death. I am covered with blood. We've been out for a month. White as a ghost. Not not a good situation. So that was disheartening.
0: But then came another car with a couple and their young baby. They were moving from Utah to California.
1: They just took a side scenic trip that morning, fortunately for us. They unloaded all their belongings right there in the parking lot. And he left his wife and his baby. This is that like eight and a half thousand feet, it's cold. And he carried me into his car. And you know, I mean, I'm disgusting. He and he stroked my my bloody head and was just the kindest man. And he drove very slow because every bump and crack in the road was shooting pain through my body. He carried me into the hospital. In the book you write, quote, For the first time in five days I finally let
0: myself cry. I would have died if I had indulged my sorrows or allowed myself to feel the full extent of my physical and emotional pain any sooner. Now confident that I would survive. I finally released my feelings. What were you experiencing when you were able to finally release those emotions? What came up for you? The
1: full spectrum. There was the joy. It's like I've made it out of the mountains, but I finally kind of acknowledged the like full extent of my injuries. Even though I didn't have the actual medical report, I knew how close to death I was and how fortunate I was to get out under these impossible conditions. But it was just a relief and I had to feel it. I had to let it out. You have to start processing these traumas. I felt pain. I felt regret and sadness and just every conceivable emotion wrapped up at once, as well as the joy that, okay, now the the next chapter begins. And in many ways, the chapters that followed, if you will, in my life were the harder ones. You know, I mean, it's heroic to get out like that, but... I think when we talk about survival stories, we so often focus on whatever it is, you survive that battle at war, or the car accident, or the mountaineering accident, and ta-da, everything's fine. But that is actually not how it works. It's the aftermath. That's the real journey. Why is what came after so much harder than what you experienced on the mountain? I think there's almost like collateral damage in one's mind and one's body that one carries forth because that trauma gets lodged at a cellular level within us. And there are certain things that are going to just trigger that. Ken and I did get married and he was a pretty hardcore rock climber and was always kind of trying to push his personal limits, which forced me to do the same. But I started finding I got scared a lot. And if it was an easy climb, I was fine with that. But if it was a really steep wall with a lot of drop off or super hard technically, I would just be re-traumatized over and over and over. And so you carry those fears. And I know I've come a long ways. I still go out into the mountains and deal with stuff as best as I can. But I I feel like I made huge progress over the last quite literally 41 years now. Traumatic events in one's life, they change you, but you we choose how we want it to change us we can decide to be victims forever and wallow in our pity and i certainly have my down moments where i do that but for the most part i think it's important to pull ourselves up and say okay this is what happened Every person on this planet has their traumatic events and their personal struggles, and it's what we do with them that matters. It's how can I take what's happened and accept it and use it as an opportunity to transform myself into a better person.
0: When you were in the hospital, a doctor said that he didn't think you'd be able to hike again. What was your reaction to that?
1: Well, there was maybe not even a minute, but but a a short period of time where I was devastated. But I'm the kind of person, if you tell me I can't do something, I really want to do (laughs) be careful (laughs) because my inner voice just rose up and it said, oh yeah, (laughs) I will prove you wrong. All I need is time and I will prove you wrong. I did need a lot of time, of years, but at any rate, I take those things as a challenge. Maybe I can't hike as fast as before. I can't carry a heavy backpack anymore. You have to adjust and adapt. In
0: 1986, four years after her accident, Jean felt up to fulfilling her dream of seeing the Himalayas. How were you feeling at that time? Were you worried at all?
1: I was pretty confident. That we were primarily going to see Mount Everest. But along the way, the friend I went with, we were going to climb one of the smaller Himalayan peaks. But I knew I didn't have it in me to do that, either physically or emotionally. But the trip was life-changing, as life-changing as Whitney, as a matter of fact, to just differently to realize that dream, what it took to heal and to be able to actually do that trek because it was several hundred miles round trip to go in and out. And it was beautiful. And that journey really <laughs> shook my life upside down It changed my values. It changed the way I looked at the world. You wrote that in your journal. This is above everything I've experienced
0: before Mm -hmm. being here is the greatest gift of all time. Why was it the greatest gift of all time?
1: It was the gift of life. I had nearly died. And when I made that vow that I'll live my greatest dream, and specifically I was thinking of seeing Mount Everest and the Himalayas, it was like I achieved life because that dream came true. And it helped me to realize that life was full of infinite possibilities. That was impossible for me to get out alive. It was impossible to really go to Nepal and do these treks. And I realized, wow, you can just keep dreaming. It empowered me. It really empowered me.
0: Now, being able to look back and having all that time to process and heal, what was the true impact of your incident?
1: as I fast forward with more time, the impact is really how I look at life. And I actually draw a lot of strength now from that. Whenever I encounter a hardship today, I remember the hardship of yesterday, in that case, Mount Whitney. And it's like, well, you got past that. So why couldn't you get past this? I mean, that was impossible. And you still got past it. It also changed me because when I made that vow about living till morning and living my dreams and being that close to death, it's informed every decision I make. So whenever there's a big life decision in front of me, I remember that. And it's like, what's important, Jean? What is it you want to do? Death is actually always in the air. You don't know when our time is. And I want to live my life to the fullest as best I can, even with difficult circumstances. And so I sort of see that visit from death as a gift. Tell me about the motivation to return to Mount Whitney. I never thought I would do that. When I left the campsite where Ken and I were waiting out that storm, I did not turn around. I remember in my mind saying, don't look back. You have to keep moving forward. So I did. And I never wanted to go back to Mount Whitney. But I did go see a trauma therapist at one point, and he's the one that said, you need to write a book. And I was like, oh, God, so many people have told me that. I don't want to write a book. And then I was like, you know what? I really want to heal on every level. So, okay, I will do whatever it takes because I want as much life back as I can get. And so I will do what I have to do. So I did. Eventually, I got so curious. I spent so much time on Google Earth, and I measured where I fell and how far I fell. And I thought, maybe I should go back and look for my skis. And I... Physically wasn't up for that. And so I trained for it. And when I was at the gym on the elliptical, I visualized I'm on that trail and I'm climbing up those canyons that are going to get me there. When we actually went to go, I was again kind of mixed emotion because I was a little fearful like, what was I going to find? I'm going to stand at the very site where I should have died. We hiked in and I was joyful. I could appreciate the beauty. When we got to that last, I don't know, half mile to our old campsite from 82, I turned to my friend, Paul and Jonathan. I said, okay, I'm leading. Let me lead. And I walked us exactly to the spot where we had camped, which I called death's campsite. And I looked up at the cliffs of where I fell and I just started bawling, screaming. I I felt more emotional release at that moment than I have in my entire life. And a lot of regret came up and anxiety and fear. I mean, just every emotion, a fire hose of emotion just ejecting out of me. And it was good. I needed to do that. And I didn't realize how healing that was. As I continue to walk around these rocky patches, and I'm looking for skis, and I realized something really important. And so I think this is another key piece of advice to your listeners that are struggling is I harbored a lot of self hatred, because I made a poor decision at 22. And that decision has affected every day of my life now for 41 years. And I hadn't forgiven myself.
0: What are you thinking of specifically that you forgave yourself for?
1: when i was standing on that ledge and ken said wait here and i chose to down climb i realized i had done the best i could under those circumstances at a young age and i didn't need to hate myself because of that decision that i could acknowledge i did my best and just forgive myself everybody makes mistakes and some are more consequential than others but that's part of the human condition i made a mistake i've have to live with the consequences. It's not all been bad. In fact, it's led me into some wonderful new directions and I have to see that and embrace that. So that was really healing. I am so glad I went back to Mount Whitney and I realized what a beautiful mountain it is and it doesn't have to be my enemy anymore. In fact, it's a symbol of strength for me.
0: What advice do you have for people who are facing a challenging time and feeling like they can't get past it?
1: I think first, when we're trying to heal a trauma, either physically or emotionally or often they're quite intertwined, is first to realize that I think we as humans want to heal so that we're like we were before that incident happened. And I think that's a false way to approach healing. You are forever changed. So I think it's just acknowledging that and to realize that healing is going to look Differently, You can heal your bone, but trust me, it is not the same as that original bone. So I think that that's important. And giving oneself permission to realize that this is a journey, you don't just heal overnight. I also think it's important to accept what's happened, but not give up. The more I talk about it, the more I write about it, the easier it is to process and to accept. So I think what we want to do, especially if our traumas are something that we don't want to talk about or we feel shameful or guilty or or whatever that emotion that we have around that, that's actually holding us back. It's creating a self-prison for us because we just keep feeding that Anxiety. So, finding someone, whether that's a friend, a family member, or a therapist that you can actually trust and start to talk about it and facing it. I mean, you have to go through it. We can't push our pain under the rug and ignore it. We try, but it always resurfaces and it never goes away. And I think one of the things I've learned is we all have these plans in life, and then something happens, and whoops this is no longer possible or it's going to look differently. Be open to new directions. Life, the universe might have different plans for you. And so using our suffering, whatever that looks like as an opportunity to go, huh, what am I supposed to do? How can I make myself a better person? How can I help others because this happened to me? That then becomes a very healing thing. Did you always have
0: this zest for life before your incident or do you think it was intensified because there was a point that you didn't think you were going to make it out alive?
1: Coming that close to death and realizing at 22 that this may be it, it definitely amplified everything. And I'm very aware of how precious life is and, and what am I Buddhist meditation practices every day we reflect on how short life is and how we are going to die and we don't know when and what circumstances and it's such a beautiful thing. Life has its terrible things but I'm choosing to focus on the positive because why wallow in misery? That's not going to accomplish anything but if I can move forward and become better for that and inspire others then then I'm giving someone a gift because something terrible happened to me.
0: Before I end my interview with Jean, I ask if there's anything else she wants to leave listeners with. She advises that listeners
1: ask themselves if they were literally facing imminent death and there was a chance they would live. What would their vow be if they got that second chance and encourage them to actually pursue that. Make this your life's priority because it's so easy to just fall into the daily routine, the daily grind. And we all have that and we do need that to survive in a different way, but that's not what life is really about. And so find what that is for yourself and make time for it and pursue that. And if you are in pain, that's okay, but you have to find your way out and you can find your way out and you have to believe that you will. You cannot give up. You do have to accept what's happened, but you can't give up.
0: How is that for inspiring? Hopefully you think the season two premiere of Here's How was worth the wait. If you do, there's more episodes where that came from. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss one and leave a review. Follow along for all the fun and inspiration on Instagram at Here's How Podcast. And if you have a friend who you think would like the show, please tell them about it. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.